Let me say that I've eagerly anticipated preaching this sermon. I'm delighted to be looking at this portion of Scripture with my new city, brothers and sisters, because it's all about resurrection life. And resurrection life is a glorious reality that we're going to be sharing together for all of eternity. Our Lord Jesus' resurrection has guaranteed that. And not us only, but all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians from every tongue, tribe, and nation of every age. Because Jesus, our representative, has been raised from the dead. And so that glorious future of death defeated in the bodily resurrection of those united to him is absolutely inevitable. It's inevitable. A future where God will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. Last week I preached the opening 19 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter 15 is the chapter in the New Testament concerning the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but also the future bodily resurrection of all of God's people. And in those 19 verses, the Apostle Paul affirms the central role of the resurrection of Christ in the gospel message he preached. The good news, which is announced to the world, received by faith, saves sinners from the penalty and power of sin, is a matter of first importance, and has Jesus crucified for sin, buried, resurrected, all according to the scriptures, at its very center. And Paul is writing this to a church where some deny the future bodily resurrection on the last day. So in the Corinthian church, um, things are, have come to a bad pass. This is, this is terrible stuff to believe. Um, some Corinthians in the church deny that Jesus will resurrect the corpses of believers on the last day. And so the Apostle Paul has been explaining the salvation shattering consequences of such a denial. And he's been arguing negatively, hasn't he? So he's saying, look, if there is no resurrection, then taken to its logical conclusion, there are seven disastrous implications. First and foremost, Christ has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised from death, the apostles' preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. The apostles are false witnesses who misrepresent God. We are still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are eternally lost. And we of all people are most to be pitied. So he's been arguing negatively. But beginning in verse 20, the apostle Paul moves to a positive explanation of the meaning and the significance of the historical fact that Jesus Christ was raised from death. And how Paul does this, well, I think I can, I can show you what he's getting at through an illustration that I've used before. I, I can't resist using this illustration because I look so cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. With these sunglasses on, everything, everything in my field of vision is now tinted a brownish golden hue. And I must say, with these glasses on, you're a good-looking bunch of people. You'd, you'd never know that you're all stuck inside for the last two years with no sun. But everything in my field of vision now is tinted a brownish golden hue. And in the same way, when the Apostle Paul, when he looks at the world, 
when he interprets, when he interacts with all of God's reality, he does so through the redemptive historical eschatological lenses, right, which gives it the world its proper biblical hue. And what I mean by all those fancy words is that the drama of God's salvation as it unfolds over all of biblical history is ever before Paul's eyes. That's how he looks at the world. It situates Paul, right, in time. From eternity past to eternity future, and it informs every single aspect of his theology. Because Paul's not just a moral man who follows the teachings of his favorite guru, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul is a forgiven sinner, saved by the good news of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin, the climax of all history. And all that remains now is the final, predetermined, inevitable outcome. And in our sermon passage today, while wearing his redemptive, historical, eschatological sunglasses, the Apostle Paul looks back to the very beginning of human history in the Garden of Eden with Adam. And still wearing those sunglasses, he then looks to the end of human history, to the, these last days that have been launched through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, so it's not just his own personal theology and made-up opinion, as he's carried along by the Spirit, Paul makes a salvation historical link between Adam and Jesus. And he explains to us, as he's guided by God's Spirit, that these two men, Adam and Jesus, are corporate representatives. Corporate representatives, which means in God's mind, both Adam and Jesus represent a whole group of people, not just themselves. Adam and Jesus are the dominating central figures of two eras of salvation history. On one end of the spectrum, one era, we have Adam, the first human being and the original representative of the human race. At the other end of the redemptive historical spectrum, this other age, we have Jesus, who is the ideal human being and the final representative of the human race. And Jesus reverses. He reverses the corruption introduced by Adam in the fall in Genesis 3. Jesus Through his death, through his resurrection, he restores things the way God originally intended back in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, his resurrection is the central event that has launched the latter days and the beginning of the new creation. Because Jesus' resurrection is the resurrection foretold in Scripture. It's the first fruits of the full harvest awaiting the consummation. The full harvest of the resurrection of all believers, all who are united to Jesus Christ through faith. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed, uh, this passage is quite dense. Uh, There's a lot of theology going on in these verses with all sorts of interconnected doctrines. So let's just simplify things as best we can. Look at your handout where it says the big picture. The concern of this passage is ultimately directed toward the person of God the Father. 
It's not just the death of individuals that concerns Paul in this text, but death itself as the final enemy of God and the fulfillment of God's sovereign purposes in the universe. The work of Christ is the key to accomplishing all of this. Jesus, the federal head for all who are in him, reverses the corruption introduced by Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Christ's resurrection demands our resurrection. Otherwise, death is never defeated, and God cannot be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. So if you get lost at any point in the sermon, just go back there. You're going to see where we're at probably, all right? So let's turn now to our passage. And as you can see in your bulletins, the first eight verses are an explanation of the meaning and significance of Christ's resurrection from the dead, verses 20 to 28. Because in our own thinking, beloved, we want to move things out of a, just a, a bare historical confession. Christ rose from the grave, as good as that is. We want to move beyond just that bare historical confession and actually invest that event with purpose, with significance, right? What, what does Jesus' resurrection signify? If I were just to ask that question to you right now, how would you respond? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ signify? And we can almost hear the sigh of relief as well as the cry of confidence with which Paul declares in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. New City, Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. Tr- traditionally, how do we greet each other on Easter Sunday? He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? It's a shame. It's a shame we, we speak that way to one another only once a year. This is something that needs to be constantly before our eyes. He is risen. He is risen Indeed, though it was our sins that held him there on the cross, we can celebrate Jesus' murder on Good Friday only because God raised our Lord from the dead on Easter Sunday. And that historical fact has a direct bearing on us, on Christians, we who have been united to our resurrected Messiah King. If if we weren't united to Jesus, then his resurrection would have nothing to do with us. And that indissoluble union is just being assumed here, okay? So look at, as we look at verse 20, where do we see this vital union link between Jesus and ourselves? What I mean is, Jesus rising from death, that's really good for him. Uh, once he was dead, now he's alive. But how, how is that good news for us? We see it in Paul calling Christ the firstfruits. Ah, okay, that's, that's the key. Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, verse 18. And that expression, firstfruits, comes from the Old Testament. When the first portion of the crop or the flock was offered in thanksgiving to God, the firstfruits signified a pledge of a remainder, right? There is more coming. This is just the first fruits. This is, this is the down payment. This is the first installment. So 
Paul calls the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 6.15 the first fruits in a given geographical area, which means not only are they just the first converts in that area, but they're the first of a much larger harvest that's yet to be realized. And it's so the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is God's first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in him, of those who have died in him. Jesus is God's own pledge that there will be a full harvest of those who will be raised to life from death. God resurrected Christ first, and later God will resurrect the corpses of dead Christians. That's what it's saying. Do you know what a a facet is? Facets are flat faces on geometric shapes. And gemstones, such as diamonds, commonly have facets cut into them to improve their appearance by allowing them to reflect light. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin and will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth, is a multifaceted diamond. And we can hold the gospel up to the light of God's word and see all sorts of new wonders and new splendors, new dimensions of God's glory, new dimensions of God's perfection. And, and here is such a facet. Here is perhaps a new way for us to think of the resurrection of Jesus, which is at the very center of Paul's gospel, as we saw last week. Jesus' resurrection is the first installment, it's the down payment on our resurrection. Our resurrection on the last day is the later part, the latter part of this same event. His resurrection points to the future and guarantees something stupendous for us. Because through our union with Jesus, there's an inseparable link between our fate and the fate of our risen Lord. Look at verse 21. For since death came through a human being... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now there's a very nice piece of theological stake, and this gets again to the very heart of our salvation. What is God telling his people here through his apostle? Well, think of it this way. Um, There are scientific principles by which God operates the universe, right? How he controls the universe. We have the law of gravity. We have, the law, we have laws of thermodynamics. Uh, but there are also theological principles and theological laws by which God governs the cosmos. And one of those principles is that a given individual at specific moments in salvation history may represent more than just themselves. God has sovereignly decreed that certain special people in redemptive history can act as representative heads. And that can either work out to our detriment or in our favor. So think of in the Old Covenant, uh, the representative head for the nation of Israel was the king. The king in Jerusalem represented the people of God to God. And if the king was a wicked king, the people of Israel were punished because the king was their representative. 
Now, the Bible tells us that both Adam and Jesus are representative heads. All, all human beings are either in Adam or in Christ. Adam is what theologians call the federal head of one group of people. He represents them. And Jesus is the federal head of the other group of people. He represents them. And this, again, gets to the very heart of how human salvation works. All of us, all of us begin life in Adam. There isn't one exception. We all start there. And our federal head, Adam, was a rebel. You've heard the Motown classic by the Temptations, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. That's not the half of it. Papa was a cosmic anarchist. And through our first father's anarchy and rebellion, we too are considered to be rebels by God because God considers Adam to be our representative. We're in his column. He's the federal head. We're below him. So what we sinful humans need is a new representative, someone who is himself human, someone who has never rebelled against God, someone who has obeyed all of God's commands, someone who can take our guilt upon himself and be punished in our place, while at the same time crediting to our accounts his perfection and his obedience. So who fits that bill? Right, the, the classic Sunday school answer is Jesus. <laughs> we need Jesus to be our representative. And Paul explains that relationship very well in Romans chapter 5. And on your own this week, I would advise you to read through that text. But what the apostle tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we also need someone with whom we are united in death for our sin, but also his resurrection life. Because more than just representing people, Adam and Jesus introduced Contrasting salvation, historical realities. Death came through Adam. Resurrection life came through Jesus. At one time, there was no death. Adam introduced that reality. At one time, there was no resurrection life. But Jesus introduced that reality. Now, perhaps what I'm preaching here doesn't sit very well with you. I mean, you certainly didn't vote for this federal headship thing. And perhaps you already identify as belonging to some other group. And heaven knows there are certainly myriads to choose from today. But God simplifies all of that, friend. At the end of the day, we all belong to only one of two groups. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. To which man do you belong? Who's your federal head? Who's your representative? Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And Paul's point is that no matter which camp we're in, what that person introduces to all under their federal headship is inevitable. In Adam, death is inevitable. It's inevitable because we all share in the humanity and sinfulness of the man who is our representative. 
But Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, has reversed the process begun in Adam. And if Jesus is our federal head, if we're united to Christ through his spirit by faith, then our sharing in the resurrection from the dead is equally, equally inevitable. After all, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Jesus' resurrection is God's own pledge to the world that all who are in him will be raised from death too. There's going to be a full harvest to come. For, for as in Adam, all die, it's inevitable. So in Christ, all will be made alive, it's inevitable. Therefore, it's not possible for the Corinthians to say that there is no resurrection from the dead. Don't they see such a resurrection is necessitated by Christ's resurrection? That's where they've gone totally off the rails. God's salvation plan worked out in eternity past, brought to its climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is inevitably moving forward to that final day. And no power of hell or scheme of man can derail it. This is God's sovereign decree. What power in the universe can resist this? And the event that has set all of this in motion is Jesus' resurrection. Its glorious effects can never, ever, ever be undone. The dead in Christ will rise. It's inevitable. Satan will rage and rage and rage, but he doesn't have a hope. Friends, this is the reality we all inhabit. If we pull back the curtain, if we go beyond beyond what we're able to just perceive with our five senses, if we humble ourselves under the preaching of the revealed word of God, then we see the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth orchestrating the destiny of every single person on this planet. And to any here today who have not repented of their sin and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, to any who are not united to Jesus by the Spirit through faith, then, then friend, hear me. To be in Adam, which you are still, is to be part of the group which has Adam as its representative and leader. It's to be part of that group which finds its identity and its eternal destiny in Adam and what he has brought about for his people as their representative. Death. But to be in Christ is to be part of the group which has Jesus as our representative and leader. It's to be part of that group which finds its identity and destiny in Christ and what he has brought about for his people as their representative. Resurrection life. That's the contrast. All people who have not yet found redemption through faith in Jesus, they remain in Adam. And friend, if that's you, that means your representative, that means your leader, the one in whom you find your identity and your destiny is the world's first cosmic anarchist. You are in corporate solidarity with the one who ushered in death for all. And your representative is bringing you into the death that he himself experienced. Why? Why will you remain with this man as your federal head one moment longer? 
Come into the promise of new life. Come and enjoy that foretaste of the ultimate restoration of life that awaits those in Christ at the resurrection. Have for your representative and your king the holy God slain on a cross for sinners and raised from the dead. Find your identity and your destiny in Jesus Christ. Be in corporate solidarity with the one who, in one righteous act, brought justification and life for all who are in him. The one whose own resurrection from the grave can be the down payment of your own resurrection from the grave. Verse 23. But in this order, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So do you see that there's a, there's a gap between the resurrections, between the firstfruits and the full harvest? Christ, the firstfruits, rose first, and those who belong to him will rise when Jesus returns. Verse 24, then, after the resurrection, after Jesus' return, the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, Jesus, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus' resurrection demands our resurrection. God sent his eternal son on a mission, a mission which Jesus accomplished. What did he say on the cross? Father, it is finished, right? But it's a mission he did not accomplish with a sword, nor with vast armies, but through his cross and resurrection. And that divine mission includes the destruction of death itself. But for death to be completely undone, our bodily resurrection is required. Because if we are not raised bodily from the grave, then death is never truly defeated and God can never be all in all. Ultimately, unless death is destroyed and all in Christ are raised, God as sovereign Lord of creation and history and redemption is placed into question. Because disembodied, ethereal, spiritual, post-mortem existence would only be a limited victory over death. Which is precisely Paul's point later in the chapter, verses 54 to 55. We'll look at this more next week, but where he writes, speaking of the Christian's body at the resurrection on the last day, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Then the victory taunt may be sung. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Bodily resurrection signifies absolute victory over death. It signifies the destruction of death, the death of death. Beloved, these are the certain events Jesus' resurrection has put into motion 
events which will bring the people of God on the last day into the enjoyment of our full salvation. Christian, does this stir your heart to unbridled worship? Does this motivate you to stand firm in the faith and cast off every sinful impediment that would stop you from finishing the race of faith? It should. It's supposed to. Look at verse 58. Therefore, this whole chapter, right? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. A resurrected eternity is coming, right? But this working out of our full salvation is very exclusive. Not everybody, not all the dead, will enjoy the resurrection life that Paul describes here. Only those who belong to Jesus. Only those who are in corporate solidarity with Jesus Christ. Only those who have believed the gospel, the gospel that is, as we saw last week, announced, received, has power to save, is Christ-centered, is theological, personal, and historical. Verse 27, Paul here is quoting Psalm 8, For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he, God, has done this, that is, when God the Father, through Jesus the Son destroys all dominion, authority, and power that exalts itself against God, and especially in the defeat of the last enemy, death, when he, God the Father, has done this through Christ, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. So that's saying God the Son will be subject to God the Father so that God the Father may be all in all. Utterly supreme, over everything, everywhere, as our sermon title says. Now, obviously, this is a passage of tremendous significance and great difficulty. Uh, Because Paul is speaking of a future so transcendent and so sublime that it really goes, I think, beyond the power of our imagination to even begin to grasp it. Uh, What we're seeing in these verses are the various offices the distinct roles of the triune God. We worship the one God of this universe, the one God who exists, who coexists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But each person of the Godhead has different functions, different roles. That's why we must never in our prayers thank the Father for dying on the cross. We sometimes hear untutored Christians praying that, don't we? And if we do, we want to take them aside and correct them. Uh, No, we thank God the Father for giving us his son to die on the cross. Uh, It's it's the same way John 5.22. Jesus says, God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son on the last day, that all might honor the Son as they honor the Father. 
So, and we see in this distinction of role, that's a distinction of role within the persons of the Godhead. It occurs in many places in the Bible. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that God the Son has the authority of God the Father himself. God the Son is equal with God the Father. Nevertheless, the Son is functionally subordinate to the Father. He's not subordinate in his essence or in his being, but in his role. Because one's role doesn't determine one's worth, does it? That's, I keep pounding that at this pulpit. Our culture says it's the exact opposite. Your role does determine your worth. No, it does not. Uh, not in the Trinity or in marriage, where both husband and wife are equal in being, but the wife submits to her husband who has authority over her, even as the church submits to Christ. And in this text, we see that once Christ has overcome every enemy of both God and of man, and especially the last enemy, death, when the saints are resurrected, the Son will voluntarily hand over sovereign kingship of the new heavens and new earth to God the Father. Notice how Paul quotes Psalm 8, which was our call to worship this morning. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. See, he's describing the smallness and yet the greatness of human beings. Verse 6, you gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority. Literally, you have put all things under man's feet. Verse 7, the flocks and herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. The creator God has put all things in subjection under the feet of man, and Jesus has come as the second Adam, the perfect man in human flesh to bring everything back into submission to man, but ultimately to God. F.W. Robertson writes this. This is a great quote. There rises before the prophetic vision of the Apostle Paul the final triumph of Christ over all evil, over all power, and the Son giving up to the Father the kingdom of this world, which in his humanity he conquered for the Father, as well as for himself. Christ laying the spoils of a conquered world at the foot of the throne of the Father shows by that supreme act of self-sacrifice that in his office as Redeemer, he came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father. And so for all eternity... God is utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. New City, do you see how there is an unbroken continuity between Jesus' empty tomb and the perfection of the new heavens and new earth where God the Father rules supreme forever? There is a direct link, a direct correlation. Remove the fact of bodily resurrection and all is lost. All of it. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, Christian, rejoice. Rejoice for that. Our risen Lord has set in motion a chain of inexorable, unstoppable events that absolutely determines our present and our future where God is all and all. And what this glorious reality ought to do is both reshape our worship into unbridled rejoicing as well as reform the way that we currently live. You see, if anything, if anything is going to have an impact on the behavior of Christians this is it. I mean, I don't know. There, there is no other doctrine you can really point to and say, let's, let's motivate ourselves to be good Christians. This is it. This is where Paul takes us next, and he looks at the moral implications for the resurrection of Jesus, but with a short pit stop along the way concerning this very strange practice of baptism for the dead in verse 29. This is our second and concluding point, and I won't be 10 minutes, so don't worry. Point number two, if Christ is not raised further implications. And you can see those implications listed in your bulletin. If God does not raise the dead, then it's absurd for people to be baptized on behalf of the dead, verse 29. If God does not raise the dead, then it's absurd for Paul to be constantly in danger, verses 30 to 32. But since God does raise the dead, it's absurd for the Corinthians to say otherwise, 33 to 34. Verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, I know some of you are like, okay, bring it on. What, is, what in the world does that mean? Some biblical scholar with, with way too much time on his hands did the math. There are over 200 interpretations as to what this verse could mean. It's, it's probably, you could almost, probably literally, the most perplexing verse in the New Testament. And we can see why there would be so many interpretations, because on a surface reading of the text, the theology of the verse is way, way off. D.A. Carson notes this. When we read the epistles of Paul, his clear emphasis is that people are justified by grace through faith, which demands a personal response. And Christian baptism is part of that personal response, even as it is a covenantal pledge. But baptism for dead people sounds very far from Paul's thought. It sounds more like magic. So what in the world is going on with this verse? Rather than working through all 200 interpretations, let me just tell you what I think this verse is saying. I think the most natural explanation is that some believers in Corinth got themselves baptized on behalf of friends or relatives who had died unbaptized. Uh, the baptism is vicarious, which is wrong. It's way wrong. But this church is in error on so many fronts. Um, I believe they were capable of almost anything. And in quoting the practice, Paul's not expressing his approval. He's simply using their practice as an argument against their assertion that there's no resurrection of the dead. He's saying, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then what's the point of your proxy baptisms? Why bother? It serves no purpose. In the same way, we could imagine a Protestant writing, why then do you pray for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? No one would take that as an endorsement of the practice of praying for the dead. It's a criticism of the inconsistency of praying for the dead, if you believe the dead do not rise. What's the point? So I feel 
pretty comfortable recommending that interpretation to you. If it's not that, then it's something pretty close. But perhaps you prefer one of the other 199 interpretations. That's fine. Uh, just make sure whichever interpretation you land on, it doesn't have Paul denying justification by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe we can't be 100% certain what baptism for the dead means, but we can be 100% certain of what it doesn't mean, right? And now Paul makes a bit of a turn. In the next few verses, he uses his own actions as an apostle of Jesus Christ as an example of behavior that affirms the resurrection. He basically tells the Corinthians, look at how I live my life, guys. It makes zero sense for me to live as I do apart from the resurrection. Verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and, and that's a euphemism for contending with dangerous, powerful political opponents or bloodthirsty human antagonists who would eagerly tear him to pieces. Paul was a Roman citizen. He could not be thrown to the animals in the games. It's, it would be illegal. Plus, he's alive. Right? So it's not that. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, that is, with a horizon limited by earthly humanity with no hope in the resurrection, what have I gained? Why would I go to all that trouble if death has the final word? Instead, I constantly, he says, I daily expose myself to danger and death in proclaiming the gospel because I know that the dead are raised. Christian, the apostle Paul faced death differently and he lived his life in a radically different manner because he knew that he had already been baptized into christ's death and that he was destined to be raised with jesus on the last day what a challenge is that how we live our lives is that how i live my life is that same worldview gloriously evident to our friends, to our colleagues, our neighbors, our children, our spouse, our social media friends, our brothers and sisters at New City Baptist Church. Is it evident to all that everything we do is done in the expectation of the future resurrection? If not, I'll keep the bark on this, there is a satanic disconnect between our theology and our life. Our priorities in this world, in this world, Christian, our morality in this world, how we relate to the treasures and applause of this world, our reputations in this world, how we serve this local church, our physical comfort in this world, our outlook on death, the final enemy, must be consistent with the truth that Christ is the first fruits of a glorious harvest in which we participate through our union with him. We are living in hope of a future bodily resurrection. Otherwise, What's the honest alternative? Verse 32. If the dead are not raised, 
Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Grab all you can with both hands, right? Life is ultimately futile. There is no ultimate direction or motivation. You're just going to molder into dust when you die, and that's the end. And that kind of futile thinking leads to a sinful lifestyle. The kind of world, that kind of worldview has a moral effect because ideas have consequences. Bad theology leads to bad living. Uh, Garland uses a beautiful turn of phrase. Resurrection means endless hope. But no resurrection means a hopeless end. And hopelessness breeds sin. And so those Corinthians who deny a future bodily resurrection have a flawed basis for a lifestyle that pleases God. The edifice of their entire life is based on sheer futility and hopelessness. An outlook which has already led some in this church to idolatrous and immoral behavior. Verse 33, Paul says, Do not be misled, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Those Corinthians who deny the resurrection of the dead, they're bad company. They're a corrupting influence in the church, like yeast working through a whole batch of dough. The Corinthians must not let such people negatively influence them. Verse 34, come back to your senses. And this actually translates a single Greek word that means become sober. So Paul's saying, wake up from your drunken stupor. And Paul directs this command to those who say there is no resurrection of the dead. And to those who are listening to such people and considering their argument as a valid possibility. Wake up from your drunken stupor. And because Paul loves the gospel. Because Paul understands the gospel, he's not afraid to push his hearers to the limits because Paul knows what's at stake. And he's prepared to shock them and, and, and shame them if that's what it takes for them to come back to their senses. Verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. Stop sinning by propagating or tolerating false teaching about the resurrection or by pursuing any related immoral behavior. And Paul supports this command with a reason. For there are some who are ignorant of God. And, th- and this some likely refers to the same some back in verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The Corinthians prize their knowledge, don't they? They're so proud of their supposed knowledge. But these resurrection deniers, they lack basic knowledge basic about God's power to raise the corpses of believers. There are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the matter. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the God we worship is an impotent, pathetic, feeble God. He is a creator only. He is not the sovereign, omnipotent God who has accomplished all things 
all of his purposes for his created order in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. It's a completely different God, which means Jesus is the Lord of nothing. Jesus Christ is a fraud. And so God's enemies triumph in life in this world is reduced to folly. It's reduced to futility if there is no resurrection. If death has the final victory, if death has the last word, then God is defeated. If death has the victory, if death has the last word, then God will never be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. And for us, life is emptied of all significance. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Which is why, as the people of God, we worship our risen Savior with full hearts and unbridled rejoicing. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the last section of this glorious, glorious chapter, verses 35 to 58, where Paul makes clear that the resurrection is not only future, but that it is a physical resurrection in a transformed body. A transformed body, patterned at the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.